Ta-da! Which is what consummation is about. Does that make sense? So, not only is this the story of the Bible, it's the story of every part of your life. This is the story of your job. You ever thought about that? My job is a good thing. God called me to work. But my sin is what's messing it up. But Jesus died on the cross to do something to relieve that. And one day in heaven, I'll work with glory. Any good thing that you can identify, you can run it through this prism, if you will. And this is sort of what comes out. And the reason I think that's so powerful is it's the best way to get people to be thinking Christologically or cruciform. Is it, what's the, what would be the adjective form of cruciform? Your life begins to take on a cross shape when you think of your life in this way. What categories are you using to think about what your life is about? Because everybody's using some categories. What, what, what categories are you using? But without question, the greatest of these four, for ministry purposes, is what happened at the fall. Cosmic car wreck of the fall. Okay? Because what happens in the fall are two fundamental things. Okay? On the one hand, there is a broken vertical relationship with God. Okay? Everybody agree with this? All right, so let me ask you a question. How do we know? I'm going to knock this over or me over. That hurt a little bit. How do we know that there was a broken relationship between Adam and Eve and God? What, what, what happened in that story in Genesis 3? They hid. They hid. Isn't that interesting? What does that hiding suggest about Adam and Eve's um, spiritual slash mental state? What were they experiencing? Guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. Okay? For our purposes, let's focus on the word guilt so we can kind of beat out two ideas. Guilt is always repellent. Ever notice this? Um... If, if, you know, Tim and I have a thing between each other. You know, it was Marianne, and now it's Tim and I. We now have a thing with each other. He's mad at me, I'm mad at him, we got a thing. If, and I, I realize I'm probably a lot in the wrong, but I just don't want to deal with it. If he walks in the room, what do I do? I'm like, oh gosh, Tim is here. Could you stand in between us? Like, I, I cannot deal with this right now. Why? Because guilt is repellent. It pushes me away from somebody. I do think there's a great question as to why it is that God spends so much time in the New Testament, especially the book of Hebrews, stressing how perfect the salvation that Jesus came to accomplish really is. Because until the guilt is out of the relationship, there'll never be connection. We'll never be drawn to Him until there's been that. Why do we go to all that minutia of detail in the end of Exodus, Leviticus, good part of Numbers, unless we're supposed to walk away being convinced, like, it looks like He thought about this. I think God... I think God kind of worked on this, okay? So I know that this is a perfect salvation. So God's answer to this broken vertical relationship is the cross of Christ, right? Which is what every page of the Bible is about. So this is one of the reasons why we say that Scripture is such a focal point. Or we might even say the Gospel is such a focal point. I mean, all these things are we're speaking of, the, speaking of the exact same way. That message is fundamentally trying to get us back in a, in a reestablished vertical relationship with God. But that is not all that happened, was it? Because there was also a broken what? Horizontal. Horizontal relationship between whom? All people. Exactly. Okay? And of course, the first people that experience the effects of that are who? Adam and Eve. 
what is the main way in which you see Adam and Eve experiencing psychologically what went on in, in, in uh, Genesis 3? Blame shifting. Covering. That's a big one. Covering what? Themselves, their nakedness. Covering their nakedness. They never, they, they never thought they were naked before. Right? Which is the whole point of Genesis 2. And the man and the woman were naked and not ashamed. Which you have to bring out because normally you are ashamed of that. we got things to cover, right? And yet for the first time, there's something in themselves that they don't want the other person to see. Right? That is tragic if you really think about it. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn inward. I'm going to hide my true self from you and cloak it in some kind of mask. And so they fashion sort of things for themselves. So, so fun, there's a shame issue that exists between not just Adam and Eve, but all people. Every relationship from that time is going to be an admixture of longing to be known by someone else, but being terrified at the prospect at the same time. Every relationship after that. Every single one of them. So, God's answer to a broken vertical relationship with Him is the cross of Jesus. God's answer to the broken horizontal relationship between people is the church. In other words, this is the place where God is going to sort of begin micro-communities, or if you will, the place where heaven and earth will intersect clean places where God's people can interact with each other and start to heal. Because now I don't have to approach you on the basis of shame because God has accepted me. And the more that I live in that reality, the less I've got to hide from you. The less I've got to sort of cloak myself in all these ridiculous fig leaf clothings that I try to make. When I was a kid, they had the, uh, the little storybook Bible. It was an old school storybook. It was blue and had these really funny cartoon pictures. And I remember that when Adam and Eve made their leaf clothes, you know, Eve had this kind of lovely off-the-shoulder number that she was wearing, and Adam had these nice little trunks that he was using. And it was ridiculous. How foolish would they have looked in leaf clothes? It was probably more just like this. Nothing was effective. But what does God have to do? God has to actually cover them with animal skins, which means what had to happen in order to get animal skins? Sacrifice. Animal had to die. Had to be a sacrifice. In order for them to come together. So you see the point? So look, for this reason... This is why RYM is looking and saying, we believe at the heart of all of our ministry thinking, we want for you to evaluate your students on the basis of two fundamental criteria. Again, boil it all down and get to the crucible. You can think of a thousand things that you'd like for your students to have and experience. Our conceptual recommendation to you is to say, when it comes down to it, we want to be able to measure their relationship to the cross. Are they converted or are they not? Now, a lot of the times you don't know exactly. Students give you a lot more questions than they do answers about that kind of stuff. But then the second question you want to know is, are they connected in meaningful relationships with each other? Most tangibly, through real life membership in a local church. Okay? But also more intangibly, about are they loners? Um, And not just because of introversion's sake. But do they have places where they, they have people that interact with them, that love them and care about them? These two broad questions, I'll put, let's put it this way. This is union with Christ. This is union with Christ's people. Which, by the way, are kind of the same thing. Get down to, Isaiah, get down to Psalm 87. Psalm 87, you get this, uh, the psalmist saying how wonderful uh, uh, Zion is uh, and that glorious things are said of her. Right? 
And at the very end, you get this very vague uh, Hebrew phrase that says, all of my fountains of life and joy and meaning and help are in you. And it's very hard to know what the antecedent is to the pronoun you in Psalm 87. Is the psalmist saying, all of my fountains of joy are in you, O God? That's the one answer. That's that's what most commentators tend to trend. But a couple other commentators are saying, well, it could be, all my fountains of joy are in you, O people of God, as you gather. Because that's what the whole psalm is about, is people gathering around as the people of God in Jerusalem, in Zion. So which is it? So we go to the sons of Korah, who wrote the psalm, according to the little tag at the top, and we'll say, so what is it? Were you talking about like God is the fountain of all joy, or God's people? And the, the, the grammar of the verse seems to suggest, what's the difference? Okay, Because the way in which God is most tangibly going to manifest Himself in the life of your students is likely through other students, or you, or that single mother who can give that child a perspective that they'll never understand, or that wonderful family who is um, doing very well and can finance just about any youth program you need, or go down the list of the way in which God's people work to come around and rally people. Union with Christ and union with Christ's people is kind of the same thing. It's all comprehended in the idea of us being in union with Christ. Now, what does this mean? Well, I don't have the thing anymore. People want to use that little sock. Prashad would be mad if I used his little sock for this. Alright, so why do we talk about this? Well, because what we're going to do is we're going to take that little breakdown and we're going to come up with a way to put it graphically into our ministry. So let's say, for instance, again, on the most fundamental level, we're going to define that there's two kinds of students in my group. Um, There are uh, uh, people that are uh, part of my group. They're in my church. This is not right. Hang on. You got to do it in your head. You got to work this thing backwards. So bear with me for a second. Okay, and by church I mean your youth group, not members of your church. So there's a sense in which we can say, okay, every student that comes in, they're either meaningfully plugged into a church, or they're kind of out there on on their own, or maybe they're in another church that's not healthy. That's possible, but that's how you think about it. Like where are they plugged in? Where's their community coming from? Where are they drawing their life from? Likewise, we can look at these folks and say, some of them, we would believe, are Christians. We see the fruits of the Spirit in them. I see them manifest you know, the, the desire for God's truth and whatever else. They're, they're Christians. They've been converted. There's other people that are like, I don't see any evidence of that. Now what do we just do? We sort of create a little bit of an overly binary way of looking at whether or not people's relationship to the church is healthy. And we've asked whether or not their relationship to the cross is healthy. When you combine those two drawings, you make a nice little helpful graphic. It's very central to what uh, what, um, RYM uh, puts forward here as an evaluation tool. On the one hand, you have people that are part of your church. They're on the right hand, two quadrants. And then there's other people that are not. Non-churched, non-grouped people. You also have people that you're convinced are Christian. But then you have people that you're convinced are non-Christian. Okay, did everybody see how I combined these two to get that? Just a way of doing a little grid. 
Now what you've noticed is, is if you've bought into our concept that basically we're trying to repair these two great things from the fall, now you've got a nice little evaluation tool. Because now I can say, there's actually kind of four different kinds of students that I deal with, aren't there, using this grid? The first one is what we kind of call discipleship students. I believe they're converted. I'm glad that they're a part of my group. I want to see them grow. What does it look like to help them out with that? How, might, how might we do that? On the other hand, then you've got people that are not necessarily part of your church, but you think they're probably converted. We call this transfer people. Okay, Those are people that transfer from other groups or, or, or non-grouped into your group. Down here on the lower left-hand thing is pretty clear. They're not involved in church. They're not Christians. We call this conversion people. Right? Somebody who's kind of floats in and out of your group and they're not a Christian. Finally, you've got people that are in your group, but you just don't think they're converted. We call those folks renewal people. Everybody see how we got to that? So now, now follow me. All I did was suggest to you these two relationships having been broken. I suggested to you that the cross and the church are at the center of God's mission for the world. And therefore, now drawing out a grid that helps us know all four kinds of people that extend from that deal. So now what we can do is we can take this graphic here and we can explode this sucker out and start to think about our programming using it. Okay? So let's take this upper group up here, the discipleship growth. Put it up there. Take the renewal people and put them down here. We'll take the transfer people and put them up here. And finally, we'll put the conversion people down here. Now, why did I explode it out like that? Because what I want to th think about is to be able to get a snap, a snap, snaps, snaps. It's not schnapps. It's snapshot. Thank you. Um, how do I take a snapshot of my ministry? Where are we right now in terms of what we're doing? Well, what we put inside the middle of this shape, this pentagon, are the stuff that I do every day. Remember? Remember our avenues of ministry? The only three ways you can be with people? And by the way, I might add to the bottom down here, either conferences or leadership. And I can begin to ask myself the question, how am I programming towards these various quadrants. In what ways am I programming? Now, let me talk about this just a little bit. Don't make the mistake of saying that the reason why we are using this little pentagon shape to talk about this is so we get everybody up in this upper right-hand corner. Of course we would love to get everybody up in this right-hand corner. That's not the purpose of the drawing. To say, how do we get everybody there? The reason for the drawing is to let you know, again, where you are in your ministry. One of those valuable things that you can do is to sit down and say, all right, here's our youth group roster. Let's say i got 30, 40, 50 students there. Let me see if I can plot these people. Plot them in this little category here of where they might belong. All right, so all right, I believe you know, Kara is fine. Uh, yeah, same with uh, that person. But you know what, boy, she visits a lot, but they don't really come much. This guy, I mean, has been coming for forever. Plot them. It'll tell you tons about your youth group. <laughs> Because suddenly you may find that you've got everybody up here. 
I got 90% of my people right up there in the, in the church Christian. So what does discipleship look like for those people? It just means that I've got to be thinking about what it looks like to think about discipleship. Not the least of which would be outreaching. <laughs> it's not always good that everybody's up here. Because where are these folks? And how are these people being challenged? What, what, who's not inviting them? If you got everybody up here, that might tell you, I might have a little bit of a safe youth group. Is that good? Let's take another one. Let's say you've got people over here, and you start saying, let's really focus on getting those people to transfer church membership to our church. That's not cool. Right? We don't ever focus on transfer growth. If God brings it, great. But to, like, engineer it feels a little classless. We call that sheep stealing. Especially if they're getting fed, maybe not with your exact theological commitments, but they're getting fed well at that other place, why would I need them to come and be, be where we are? We, we don't grow for blind growth's sake. Follow me? Um, if i got nothing but non-Christians and conversion growth, well, that's going to change my programming a lot. So then I'm going to look back, and I'm going to get my calendar out, and I'm going to say, what kind of one-on-ones in small groups and large groups are we doing? And how am I addressing the needs that are here? So you see, now you've connected your programming calendar items with the values that RYM is trying to commend to you. So I get a lot of people that come back and they're like, well, you know, we really feel like there's another one missing over here. Uh, We want to make it, uh, uh, people throw in all kinds of things, worship. I'm like, that's cool. Like, we're not trying to say that this is like the greatest thing in the world. We're saying it's a way. And you can be doing that. It's just not RYM's philosophy of ministry. Don't feel self-conscious about that. That's fine. We don't think we know everything. But it's a way to begin to conceptualize what you do so that you're not just spinning your wheels. So that all this activity that takes place with the one-on-ones and the small groups, the large, I'm trying to plan, I'm trying to put it all together, I'm trying to make it work, is not just for naught. And we know why we're doing that. So that when you sit in front of your session or your youth uh, 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 what do you call it, committee of your church, you can say, let me tell you why we're doing this. We were at RYM and we started plotting where our students all were, and we suddenly realized that we've got a boatload of kids in our group that are not converted, that we're not convinced are converted. So we started really drilling down on saying, you know what, I think our main problem is that we're not connecting individually with some of these youth. So we're really going to, this semester we're really going to drill down on one-on-ones. There's not going to be as many small groups and large groups is going to be kind of a thing. This is really what we want to do better this year. Suddenly you're setting goals. You kind of have something more tangible so you know where you're going. You can get to the end of the semester and be like, oh, how do we do it one-on-ones this semester? Um, and I got really tired halfway through. Okay, next time let's dial back our expectations because we don't want to burn each other out. See what I'm saying? It becomes a tool that you can diagnose your ministry with. Right? The beloved Pentagon. Now some of you are saying, why did you lop off the bottom? And we're going to do that next. But before we leave that, questions about this whole graphic stuff. I told you there would be lots of drawings today. So, yeah, Jim. Les, uh, you mentioned about goals and diagnostics. Can you give a specific of like how you would measure that like outside of, I did 50 one-on-ones? Or, you know... <laughs> That's a great question. Um, um, so when we were talking about ministry dynamics, let's go back up here to do theology, philosophy, methodology. Okay, meth. Um, remember we talked about ministry dynamics down here? And we made that big list. One of the things that we've got to talk about in that area is time management. Now that's not my seminar. I have a seminar that I do on time management, but it's not for this, it's not today's topic. Um, there is no doubt that trying to create measurable goals 
Because have y'all ever seen the smart things? Mm -hmm. CC's rolling around right now because we've been doing this a lot. Goals are always, we did this in staff meeting. Goals are smart, right? Your goals have got to be what? Simple, right? What's M? Measurable. You've got to be able to like say, we want to have X amount of increase in something or other. What's A? Attainable. It's got to be something you can actually do. Uh, it's so funny. My, my, my associate pastor, his goal this time last year was like, lose 30 pounds. And we were like, that's dramatic. <laughs> he did lose one. And it's it like, give yourself something that's attainable, you know, because like it, it feeds off itself. What's R? Realistic. Realistic. Exactly. I forgot what it was. You're right. It's realistic. Uh, same thing is kind of attainable. And what's T? Time bound. Time bound. Give it a time. We're going to do it by this summer. Right? So what I would say is oftentimes when you're measuring that, you don't know what you can do. Brian Sorgenfry is capable of doing 15 one-on-ones a week. Now, he turns 40 a year from this March. And we're going to see if that changes. Because when I turned 40, everything just kind of went down shift. And I realized I couldn't do more than 10 a week. If I got to that third one-on-one in a day, it was just kind of like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it just, all they got was glazed eyes. I don't know. I'm just getting older. I can't, I can't do active listening the way in which I could. So it changes. See what I'm saying? What I'm saying is, though, at least now, my evaluation makes sense with the big purpose of my ministry. And that, I think, is what organizations need. Because now I can teach people why we're doing what we're doing, and we're all aligned and so we're not spinning our wheels. Burnout's what's going to kick you, kick you out of the ministry, and that's what these kind of things can help uh, help you work through. But I mean, th- but there's definitely some um, there's some keys about one on ones in general that you just got to feel. I knew a lot of guys that were like couldn't do more than six or seven a week because that really they're super active listeners, and they would go for two two and a half hours. I was kind of a you know I'm looking to touch base. Was all the time I really had at Ole Miss, to be quite frank with you. And so I was kind of watching that clock. As a matter of fact, I would kind of find myself, y'all going to hate this. Um, I, would, I would walk into the restaurant, find the clock in the room, and make sure that I could sit at the table that could let me see the clock. So that I could... Yes. When, how, when did you first notice Les was uh, obsessive-compulsive? Um, maybe during we started doing one-on-ones. But that was part of the idea was so I could measure the time and know, like, I want to get to the questions I want to talk about before I lose track of time. Because yeah. I couldn't afford the time in, in that other ministry. This is a big ministry question. Okay? When you're in a larger ministry, I can't just hang out. It's got to be, it's got to be happening, especially if I want to get to the people that I wanted to get to. Does that make sense? That's a great question, Jeremy. What else? Any other insights or thoughts from this uh, thing? Yes? Just real quick, can you distinguish again the difference between the conversion and the renewal? Yes. Conversion growth are people that are, you, you don't think that they're converted. You don't see any evidence of, of, of genuine work of the Holy Spirit in them. And they're also not a part of your group or any other body's, any, anyone else's group. Does that make sense? However, a person who you don't think is converted, but they're really plugged into your group, then, which is very possible, that's renewal. Okay. Thank you. Yep, yep, yep. Again, it's this little binary thing we made with like, what's their relationship to the cross and what's their relationship to the church? Because if that's the place where the Holy Spirit works, now I've got the confidence that I'm kind of doing whatever I can to see the Spirit work, which is what it means to put the Spirit in our crosshairs. See? Which this is evangelism. Now my whole ministry is evangelism. 
which is hilarious. You'd be like, well, you know, I go to the youth group. It really seems like they care about evangelism. I'm like, okay, tell me about that. Well, they go out on the weekends, and they got these tracks, and we go to like apartment complexes, and we knock on people's doors. We ask them if they want to have conversations. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, that's cool. Yeah, whatever. I said, um, but I often respond like, but we're not not doing evangelism because we're not doing that. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Actually, every single thing that we do, we think it's about evangelism. Because we think the Spirit is the one who actually converts people, and He tends to show up in these two big topics. And my whole ministry is conceived in those two uh, foci. You follow me here? Yeah, what else? What would you say is one of the best solutions you've found to working with people who are perhaps like a part of the church, but they're not converted? Or perhaps they're like covenant kids who don't want to come around. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to do a study through the minor prophets and ask that very question. Because that's kind of where they're talking about. you got a hardened people of God, the people of Israel. There's a sense in which my answer to that question, I don't know. Okay. But I like the fact now that at least I've got a category for why we're talking about that. Yeah. It's not just a random, because here's because what can happen when you suddenly realize that is this can be a short little step to depression. You sit down with a piece of paper, you got your youth staff around you, and you're kind of like, okay, where's everybody? I don't think he's converted. Okay, good. Well, what do you think she is? I don't think she's converted either. Okay. Eventually you'll be like, what am I doing wrong? Yeah. Okay. That's not the point of this exercise. The point of the exercise is, God, what hand have you dealt me this semester? It changes all the time. And how am I programming to meet that need? See, that, that means all your efforts are purposeful <laughs> so that I don't get burned out and I don't get freaked out about it. So I'm saying, I don't know what we try, but at least now we're trying in a direction that I can evaluate, that I can make changes in the future for. Yeah. In general, like I said before, there is such a thing as hardness of heart. Um, I felt like for covenant kids, I have thoughts about this that I'm not sure I'm ready to share. We could throw the recorder out of the room. Yeah, could we pause that? For <laughs> um, no, this is just, I, I still say that um, one of the things that you'll hear RYM talk a lot about is the value of family ministry and seeing parents as part of your experience. I feel like I've gotten so much more traction when I don't look at this covenant child's issues, whatever their issues are, whether it's sexual infidelity or just you know lazy spirituality, whatever, and like kind of drilling down on that thing because it's always kind of interconnected with, I think, family stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is, gosh, this is 20, 25 years ago. We were at RUF staff training, and we had this sort of off-the-key conversation um, at Simpson Wood Retreat Center, now that it popped up in my head. This place you're going to visit. It's actually closed down now. Um, um, and we were talking about, like, can we identify traits in the college students that we dealt with uh, who embrace their parents' values. You follow me? Like, what was the trick? Well, it wasn't like... It wasn't everything that you get freaked out about when you're a new parent. Do we breastfeed or bottle feed? Oh, my gosh. They're going to hate you when they're older. You know that. Um, it's not like public school versus private school or homeschool versus private school. Educational philosophy. It was none of those things. The biggest deciding factor was whether or not that student could talk to their parents. So I oftentimes feel that like whenever I get a covenant child who's kind of got some stuff spinning around in them, I just got a suspicion that there's something spinning around at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doesn't that feel right? 
There's yeah. something else kind of going off. Uh, going off. There's another alarm going off out here that I kind of want to be like, to it. Rather than take this thing head on, you know, full tilt boogie, like a boom, you know, let's talk about your hardness of heart. Mm-hmm. It might be to step back and be like, ah, I kind of want to do a back end thing here. Because again, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting the same result. If I've been beating this kid, you know, with the truth over and over again, I'm still not seeing any kind of softening from him. I just got some suspicions at that point. Okay. That's not fully formed. But thank you for asking to get me kind of in that direction. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you yeah. think about your church members in these categories very often? All the time. So for whatever it's worth, this is exactly what our church adopted. Um, I had some influence on this. Um, so basically what we have said was um, we've chosen the lingo to, to speak of the cross as our hope. Uh, we start talking about the lingo of the church as our home. And I added a third because um, as the people of God, this strikes me as somewhat static, um, which is not true for youth groups in general. So I added the work of the kingdom uh, that we call healing. The funny thing is, when you watch churches, evangelical churches gravitate to try to do this exercise of coming up with a way of talking about their church's purpose, they kind of gravitate to these three things. Somewhere in there, there's something about the gospel and hope. Somewhere in there, there's something about our community and our fellowship. And somewhere in there, there's something about reaching out to the community around them. Like, what's downtown's tagline? Yeah, pursuing the heart of Greenville or... I know he distinguished between mission, mission, and, and, and I know I heard all this. Yeah, that he does. achieving the good news and see every avenue of Greenville loved well. Okay, see, see, see champion the good news. Share life in small groups. <laughs> Share life in small groups and see every area. And I think this is interesting because I think once you start down the biblical storyline, you kind of have to end up here. So pick whatever language you want. We, we did home and hope because this word home is very much in the, in the DNA of our church. If people come and visit Christ Prez and they say something nice, if, they're going to say it's a friendly place. Those people really welcomed me. And so we even built the new church, or the, the church that's being constructed right now, uh, with the whole theme was homey. Okay? <laughs> not homey. Home. <laughs> home. <laughs> Sorry. It's not funny. Um, so we had, to, we had to keep that language. So literally, we had, the, the, the tagline used to be... Uh, we, we, are, we are a home for those who have found their hope in the gospel and a place where that gospel is offered to all. And I was like, okay. I said, I see that it's offered to all. I said, but there's a little bit more to it than that. Like, we're, we're a little more active than just kind of offering. And I was, I was sitting at lunch with the RUF minister at Birmingham Southern, uh, and I said, I need an H word that has to do with the fact that we're supposed to go out and bring the kingdom advance. And he goes, Healing. I was like, dang it, how do you all do that? Because I can't think of that stuff. So that was, that's where we, there we came up with Hope Home Healing. And I brought it back to the church, and they were like, that's exactly where we want to be. I forgot, was that the question you asked? Oh, yeah, yeah. So the categories, yes, still work. Same thing in your youth group. Um, and again, my guess is, is if your church has ever done some strategic planning and decided to sort of talk about their values, which is really important to get people aligned, your church needs to be able to do this. And, and, and you need to be able to do this with your youth group. Do you have a do you have a, a mission value statement for your youth group? That's an important part of it, right? Because you got I got to know how am I connecting this back? It'll keep you from burnout. It'll keep people from complaining as well. All right. 
This is, these are the texts that you get when you're a pastor. Hey, Les, this is so-and-so. Uh, biblically, is there a big difference between sin and iniquities? These are the text messages that you get. <laughs> you're like, all right, I have no idea. I guess i got to think of an answer to that question. <laughs> Now, let me make sure I haven't forgotten anything here. Don't know. All right, I know that's a lot of verbiage. I know that's a lot of stuff. But once the Pentagon kind of gets into your into your belly, it helps tremendously. Let me introduce the principle, the presuppositions, and then we'll take a break. Does that work? Mm-hmm. That work for everybody. All right. So again, we're trying to get this Pentagon together here. And by the way, this is in all your RYM literature. There's a picture drawing of this in the back of all your manuals and stuff. This is a simplified version of that. Um, in the drawing, we always put a little platform down here at the bottom that we call our presuppositions. Now, the funny thing is, that's really not the greatest word for what we're trying to describe. But it started with the letter P, and we already had principles, and so it's stuck. Um, what do we mean by presuppositions? Well, the thing that we've got to make sure that we define is it's great for us to have values as an organization. Some of those values are realistic. Some of those values are um, aspirational. We're hoping to be that one day, right? But there's something that also has to be mentioned that every organizational guru will tell you that you've got to establish for your organization. And that is, have you decided about how you behave? Like, how do we do it around here? What are, the, what are the behaviors that are distinctive of your youth group as an organization? What are the things that sort of describe how you get things done? And in order to illustrate this, let me pull out um, what we have worked on at Christ Presbyterian Church in Oxford. So one of the things that we say that we, that we describe as a behavior of ours uh, is we want to be biblical. And that sounds like, well, duh. Actually, not duh. Um, before I took the job a year and a half ago, I spent that spring before going to all the other major churches in Oxford just to kind of see what their deal was. And I began to realize that expositional, verse-by-verse preaching was unique in our community. Not everybody was doing it. A lot of marriage enhancement sermon series, a lot of uh, you know insights for living kind of things, but not a lot of like, we'll go to Ephesians this spring. Start at the beginning, march on through it. Okay, um, So we said we want that to be part of our... We're the biblical people. Okay, uh, They also started talking about uh, wanting to be incarnational. This was the word we chose by saying we want to be the group of people that show up. We don't want to be making pronouncements at other people. We want to show up in your lives. We want to be present among other people. And we kind of are. Uh, this is before I ever got there, so it's not on anything that I've done. Uh we talk about being hospitable. This one was kind of um, kind of easy because hospitality was very much of the DNA of our former pastor. Uh, Kurt is just a welcoming individual. He loves to draw people in. And so that was part of sort of our behavioral outlook. Uh, we talk about wanting to be culturally engaged. This is important. We talk about this engaged. We talk about this because there's so many ways for religious people to posture themselves towards a community. It's kind of like, well, we're Christ Presbyterian Church, which means we boycotted Disney. Um, and you go down your list of things that you boycotted and sort of don't. We're not gonna, that's not gonna, we're not going to like take stands against things. There's plenty of that going on in our culture. That's not going to describe who we are. We're the guys who enter in. We want to engage with the culture. 
You know, we're not going to stand up and talk about the horrors of Harry Potter. Yes, there are people in our church who think that Harry Potter is of the devil. In our church. I had this conversation last week. It makes my head want to explode. Okay? And we're going to engage because it's all about the demons and Harry Potter. Here's something. How about this one? We want it to be a group of people that behave as if we are campus aware. Which campus are we talking about? Knoxville, Mississippi? Old Miss. Why are we doing that? Because it's a real part of the culture. It's, abs- it's every other person in the town. <laughs> so in half of your town are students, and you don't have anything in your approach to ministry that acknowledges the fact that there's all these students here, you might be missing something, right? Isn't that, you know, half of my people are divorced, aren't they? Well, you know, we don't have any divorce recovery in our uh, church. Huh. I want to think about that. I'm missing number six. CC? Do you remember what it is? Dang it. Come on, CC. Yeah. I'm thinking. But the thing was, I did it two days ago. It's not CC's fault. It's my fault. Anyway. But, but this is what I'm saying. These are our behaviors. Does that make sense? They're the things that describe sort of how we do it around here. All right? Uh, that's what the presuppositions are. It's very, very important to identify this because it's what gives your ministry its flavor. Now I should have used the flavor, I think, because that would have been much better there than it was before. Whatever. Um, so deciding kind of what, and a lot of it has to do with what you're already doing well. A lot of this identification of presuppositions is not um, making up something that you want to be. It's just kind of looking and seeing where the Lord's led you. And so for RYM, we're actually, once again, making a conceptual recommendation for the way in which we think people can establish uh, presuppositions in their ministry. Does that make sense? And we're going to list out what those are. Now, here's one of the great things. The reason why we put it down here in the Pentagon drawing is because one of the worst dangers that can happen is if stuff from up here drops down into your presuppositions. Think about this for a second. The way that you do your large group, what happens when that becomes a presupposition and not an avenue of ministry? It will never change. Never change. You know, honestly, we've always done it this way. So that's just kind of the way we stick with it. Well, it's just always going up. Um, there's a guy down in uh, Grenada, Mississippi, who I have the enormous respect for. I think he's having surgery this week. Is Chris Accardi having surgery this week? I think he is. Um, anyway. Um, but Chris came down and he said, look, I walked into my church. It was one of the, this church was struggling. Tiny little country church in a small town in Mississippi. And he said, the first thing that I did, that I looked at the session and said, I'm not coming to be your pastor unless you can promise me that there'll be no sacred cows. That was the phrase he used, no sacred cows. And uh, at first I thought, that's kind of a cute phrase, but I suddenly realized that he was talking about what we talk about in RYM all the time. What happens when a practice, a ministry method, that, by the way, you've only deployed in the way in which you have because you've done your work about who your people are, right, right, right? What happens when that drops down to my presupposition and becomes something we never question? It just becomes a behavior of ours. It's not a good thing. We want to be able to roll with it and realize, hey, it's five years later, y'all. We're in a different church. Three of our elders left and moved out of town because they took different jobs. We had this X amount of growth. So this, there's 25% more people that were here. Hey, we've got to rethink this. The old things aren't working. But let me tell you, once you start to change programming that worked in the past, you make a lot of people upset because there's a lot of emotional attachment to that, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, this is what's going on in your churches, especially those of you who have stepped into roles where there was a very successful predecessor to you. <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> because what happens is, is they all look at them, oh, so-and-so did. Well, I'll tell you what so-and-so did. You're just kind of like crushed under the intimidation, first of all. The truth of the matter is, by the time I got up, that's four years ago. There's not one person in this youth group that was here four years ago. That doesn't occur to any older person. They forget that every four years, a whole different set of students. Right? So you especially got to think on your feet and got to be moving. You got to be bobbing and weaving with the changes that come with every particular generation. So what are our presuppositions? We'll do that in our next session after we have a time of questions. I'll have six minutes for questions. What you got? Yes, ma'am. Okay, ma'am. so this is kind of something that we just struggled with recently this year was we wanted to try having youth group on Wednesday night in order to reach families who have a different schedule, aren't yep. homeschooled, things like that. Yeah. Um, and a lot of our leaders were, no, we've never done it that way. If you do it that way, we'll stop leading. And so, like, besides the, you know, being held hostage by that, like, you know, which wasn't that big of a consideration for us, but how do you move forward in something when, yeah, there's that kind of, like, yeah, yeah. disunity? When is the time in which a church, I'm going to answer your question with a question. When does, it, when does a church that has done zero outreach for, 15 years look around and they're like we're all the same age <laughs> who's going to pay the bills for this thing when we die that's what happens in your 50s by the way let me give something to look forward to <laughs> in your 50s it's the first time you're so dad passed away 6 years ago or so I tell the story all the time bear with me and one of the things that hits you when you're standing in a room with your father who's I was my dad's buddy I was the youngest child kind of his favorite um, <laughs> right um, and uh you're standing around this hospital bed, and he's suffocating to death because he died of, a, of an interstitial lung. Um, inter, uh, oh, dang it. Idiopathic interstitial pulmonary fibrosis. Are there nurses in the room? Who knows what that is? It's awful. You just suffocate to death. That's all you do. So he's there, and he's all pumped up and whatnot. And um, um, you're standing there, and you're looking, and part of you is just destroyed because your buddy's dying. The other part of you, though, is like, okay, I'm going to be here one day. Yeah, zero choice about that. Everyone is going to die. And for whatever reason, watching your dad pass away that brings that home to you. I'm going to be laying in a hospital bed somewhere, and Anna Grace and Caroline and Luke are going to be standing there and be like, you know, we're just praying that the Lord would go ahead and take him. <laughs> Thank you. That was supposed to be funny. <laughs> You're the only one that was funny. I was trying to make a joke. You've got to laugh about it at some point. But it kind of settles in on you. You're kind of like, okay, all right. So, Lord, what do you want me to do in this last part? of? Because now when you've got less time in front of you than you have behind you, how about that? That's a great realization. It's good times. So, hey, let's close in prayer. I'm just kidding. Um, my answer to that is, how long does it take a church before they realize, like, we're going to die out? And, and I've got to find creative ways to impact people in saying, if you're not growing, you're shrinking. If you're not moving, if you're not trying to be creative and, and, and see things kind of move forward, you're going to calcify. But a lot of people, they get, they get addicted to that safe. They get nervous. They get afraid. They've got trauma in their background. Okay. There's a bad thing that happened. You know, the church almost split last time we talked about this. I get it. I get that fear. And what it means is that ship is not going to turn real quick. But I do, I do think there's something about the youth staff that come back who want to meaningfully be involved. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't know how y'all do staff meetings, but like our staff meetings are very intentionally collaborative where I very much want to hear from everybody's perspective uh, in staff meeting. Right, CC? Yes. Okay, good. Um, so make sure. Um, and part of that is so that I don't see in a way in which it's not doesn't need to be seen. We've always got to be stretching. Doesn't matter what the goal is that you set. 
Even if the goal, if the six months later you're coming, that was stupid. So what? You had something that you were going for. A number of years ago, this is going to sound weird. A number of years ago, I got on a productivity kick uh, because I was stressed out in a new job. I was a campus minister for 17 years, and now suddenly I am the RUF area coordinator, to which I used to joke with the interns, is a mid-level denominational bureaucrat. That was my job, okay? Um, and I would travel around and go around, and I had so many, like, plates spinning in, like, 18 different cities, okay? <clears throat> then I got on a productivity thing, and I was amazed how many people who talk about productivity stuff would say, here's where you start. Have you ever heard this? If you want to start to become a productive person in a day, what do you do first every day? Do we talk about this? Okay, sorry, this is, you're stealing my thunder, Tim. Um, just make your bed. Just start making your bed. Don't plan anything else. Just see if you can go a whole week making your bed before you're done. Y'all, y'all. Amazing. Why? Because it gives you sort of a little dopamine charge to be like, well, you know what? I don't know what I'm going to get done today, but I got that done. You know? Um, don't do the Jim Gaffigan thing where it's like, I don't want to leave you. You were wonderful last night. <laughs> the whole stick on staying in bed. My point in all that is, what is my point in all that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my point in all that is, it's got to get something inside of me that sort of move that forward. Are there wins that I can give to my church to show that how we've kind of moved with the, with the program to get them thinking about the same thing? There's a lot of burnout pastors out there, y'all. And I don't blame them. I get it. I see the frustration. I can feel it pulling even me, even just after a year and a half where you're like, man, this thing moves slowly and why did that one little thing that somebody said completely set me off for the next month and a half? You know, why am I so just a baby? Um, and you just do that so long you just kind of want to give up. What are those fresh ways in which that God kind of comes and shakes us up? It's a great question. Any other thoughts? Yeah. yeah. Um, this is going back a little bit, but when you talked about uh, sort of the way you think about your relationship with your kids and what would be in the game, mm. um, so on one hand, like, are there any practical things that you did to make that happen? And second, if there's a parent who, or a lot of parents, who it seems like that's just a foreign concept to them, they sort of celebrate the distance that they have between themselves and their kids. You know, it's funny that they have the songs and stuff. <laughs> like, how would you elevate a speech to them to say, here's how you can jump in and, and why you should do that? I'm going to bring in the triage discussion. I, and, I, and I said this to the, um, like, here's the deal. We had, so we had this critical conversations thing a week ago tonight. And uh, porn, and you got to do all the statistics, and everybody's just kind of going, it's, just, it's gross, they make a gag. Um, and um, I think I kind of got to the end of the night with I was like, look, if you're where you are now, and you know, you're trying to figure out how to connect with your high school students. You know, like it's a little too late. And so Scott and I were talking. Are we talking about this? Just, I feel like where you got to start is with the uh, third, fourth, and fifth graders. Because that's kind of the first time where you realize, oh, they have a will, and you know, they're gone for all day, and I've got a little more freedom. And you kind of want to tend to be like, Whew. and part of it's because you're so exhausted from the first five years of raising them to get them away to school. Like, I got my wife back when my youngest child finally went to school all day. Like it was like the new ginger. Hello, my darling. She's like, I've got all morning to myself. <laughs> Clean the house. It looked awesome. Um, but um, as far as advice and elevator pitch, I, I don't want to be despondent for somebody who's got high school independence loss, but it's like, I think the parents I've always admired the most were never perfect and did not have perfect children. Um, I'll think of one of our elders in our church. He's got two boys that are just running away from the Lord. 
but doggone them if they aren't if every <laughs> the oldest is a the leader of a band I won't say the name of the band in case I don't know who they, who they are relatively popular he's got a little following they go to every show he puts together they fly up there to go see him in New York all the time like four or five times a year they just made a commitment that regardless of where you're going we want to be a part of your life takes them on golf trips um they're present, and the heartbreaking thing is how much they beat themselves up. Because whenever somebody gets them and talks about parenting, they just feel shamed. Um, and I'm like, you're doing it right. First of all, I believe that those covenant bonds are going to reward their desire to stay connected to them. I really, I, those boys are not done with their lives yet at all. Um, but I feel like it's, like it's never too late to humble yourself. You know, to go to my kid and to be like, I think I've been treating you like an object and not a subject. I use this language all the time. What do you do with an object? It's like, this cup is an object. What do I do with this? I move it. I manipulate it. I force it into doing my bidding. <laughs> That's treating someone like an object when I manipulate them. But what, what do I do with a subject? With a subject like English or history, I go and I study it. I read it. I want to know. I want to figure it out. Uh, I want to understand. How, do I, how am I looking at my children? Are they objects or are they subjects? Um, because the irony is, the parents who treat them like subjects are the ones for whom, mostly, not all the time, they've embraced their parents' values. They walked in the paths of their parents because they know that they, know that they see an advocate in them. Do they do everything right? No. Do they sure they're converted? No. Are they going to church every week? No, but they're still in the game. And when it comes down to it, and they're starting to look for true north, they're going to land on what mom and daddy did. Because they were power centers. That's what God built us to be. It's a much better evangelistic program to have people raised in homes that are Christian. Not a Christian because we didn't read Harry Potter books. But a Christian because we put a value on each other's hearts that the world just doesn't do. That, would be my, that was longer than that was Alright, so let's look at let's look at RYM's presuppositions. Behaviors that affect our our ministry. And again, conceptual recommendations, right? All right. So the very first of RYM presuppositions uh, is, is, is a presupposition about uh, the Bible and about theology. Uh, one of the ways in which you'll see it uh, sort of in parenthesis oftentimes is that we're reformed. Okay? Now, this throws a lot of people off. They're like, okay, if one of your presuppositions is the Bible, how is that different from Scripture as one of your principles? And I say, you now don't realize what we mean is the difference between our principles and our presuppositions. Remember, our principles that came under that right-hand side of the, remember, theology, philosophy, methodology, and over here we had our principles, over here we have our precepts. Right? And then ministry dynamics here. Remember, our principles are the things, those, are, those represent our theological commitments. Are they everything that the Bible has to say? Of course not. Are they three really helpful things that youth groups would be incredibly uh, <laughs> valued to get before they graduate? Oh, absolutely. So it's a great place to start. Our presuppositions, though, are different in that they're simply describing our, our, our mode of operation. That's a great uh, phrase for what we mean by presupposition. We're talking about our mode. How about our posture? 
the way we come to people. So when we say the word biblical theological, like Reformed theology is a presupposition, what we mean is, is we are not trying to come to student ministry as mere Christianity. Now I'm not knocking C.S. Lewis's book, By Any Stretch of Imagination. Who could knock that book, right? There's nothing wrong with people saying, really if you were trying to crystallize down to what Christianity really is, what we all share in common, what would it be? I think that's a doable prospect. Although it's fraught with complications, is it not? Did your campus where you went to college ever try to do a unity movement? Uh, where you're like, you know what, we're all going to cancel all of our programs. We're going to come together for this worship event. We're going to meet in the middle of the grove. Uh, it's going to be awesome. Um, I'm making fun because I never want to be a part of it. Um, oftentimes what those involved was, what we're going to do is we're going to drop anything that we disagree about. And we're only going to sit on the essentials. And you're kind of like, hmm, so what is that? <laughs> because what you begin to realize is that's a way simplistic understanding. As if people looked and said, our only disagreements are these three things over here, and we're just going to start a new denomination because of it. That's not what happened. What happens is, is you choose a different fundamental core value. Remember like what I was saying from the meter book earlier on? That like, what did you set as the centralizing uh, organizing principle. That's how Meter puts it. What is the organizing principle for your denomination? Okay? Again, for the Catholics, it's the church. For the Methodists, it's a holy movement. For a Calvinist, it's the glory of God and His manifestation. That's what led to our differences. But until you unify over those essentials, getting unity over things that are peripheral are really hard. Really hard. It's not easy at all. So here's what we're discovering. What we want to be able to do is to go to students and say, okay, look, for the sake of discussion, <laughs> we're going to take a side on a lot of these things. Okay, uh, I know that I have dear friends and people I love who have different views of baptism. But we're going to take a side on baptism. We're going to baptize your babies. There you go. That's who we are. <laughs> now, we're not saying that's the most important thing in the world, but this is kind of who we are. And we're okay with it. And we think we can talk about why we do it and give you a good reason for it. doesn't mean that we think you're awful if you disagree with us. But there's something that we, that's who we are. What we found, especially in Reformed University Fellowship, RUF, is that rather than doing what the pundits thought that that would do, the pundits would look back and be like, well, one thing you cannot do is talk about theological division. Because for this upcoming generation, the divisions of the church is one of the major disincentives that like run people away from the church because they hate seeing the infighting. It's just not true. I think there's a generation rising up who leaves the church because we've decided there's no distinctives. In other words, you've got a church being like, could, there's a generation rising up who doesn't take Christianity seriously because we've worked our best to remove anything that might be offensive from it and suddenly you've got nothing in the end. And they know that. They see it. So yeah, there might be a sense in which we're coming in and saying, We'll take a little bit of a different position on the sovereignty of God than your basic Methodist church. We kind of think God like runs everything. And we can talk about what that means, but we really want to put that forward because I think it's important the way we organize things. What we found in Reformed University Fellowship is that did not alienate people from our ministry. They really appreciated it. It was like, finally, <laughs> somebody's taking a side. You know, I, I doesn't mean that I'm going to agree with everything that you say, but finally we got someone with some sense of conviction. This is the thing that, I, that sort of rattles, and this, this quote is going around, given our present political context. Um, you know, in the absence of real conviction, 
The fear is not that people will believe nothing. That was kind of what we were afraid of. What happens when everybody becomes godless and they don't believe anything? That's not the fear. The fear is that they'll believe anything. And what anything is, is typically the loudest voice. If you're international right now, it's Islam. Right? Sweeping across Western Europe, even as we speak. Why? Because they've got conviction. I remember after the towers came down 20 years ago, in 9-11, people were kind of like, oh, what a horrible and cowardly act that those people did. And I was like, it's horrible, but cowardly? I don't, it was incredibly brave, if you ask me. Now, it was for a principle that was false and wrong and evil, <laughs> but it's not cowardly. There was conviction behind that. And what you suddenly realize, and this happened very early on, is in the back of our minds we started thinking, you know, for the international community that may not appreciate America as much as we do, they'll be looking at those, at those terrorists and be kind of like, now that's what I'm talking about. So what happens is you have a culture that's just looking and listening for the loudest voice. Okay? So now what happens to your politics at that point? Who can polarize the most? Okay? And that's why, that's why it gets worse and worse. There's a lot of polarization. What we hope in our ministries to say is, to say, look, I think I can be gracious about this. I am going to fight with you about the Trinity. Okay? I ain't flexing on that one. <laughs> we can have a conversation about infant baptism. I'm not going to freak out if you, don't, if you don't decide to baptize your babies. But I at least know enough, and I'm aware enough to say, this is who we are. And don't apologize for it all the time, but allow people to have a winsome orthodoxy. That's what we're looking for. Both of those things. To be orthodox, in keeping with what the confession says, and winsome. Okay? So our first behavior, our first mode, our first description of our posture is, hey, I'm not here as a mere Christian. I'm here as a Presbyterian. I'm here as, a, as, a, as an Acts 29 Baptist. Right? Or whatever it is, y'all. I'm here from the EPC, whatever you're down with. The weirdest handles on these things. Any questions about this first one? Before I go to the next one. Yes. Did you have a oh you scratched your head? That's a dangerous fact there, isn't it? Uh, number two. God is at work. This phrase goes around a good bit. Um this is what we might call, to the degree that this was like a theological presupposition, this is a, uh, this is a providential uh, presupposition. What is God's providence? Anybody remember the catechism question? What is God's providence? Yep. Did you have to learn it for some reason? holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all of his creatures and all of their actions. Impressive. Come on, y'all. Put Josh a hand over here. That was that's like that, that material with that was gray matter that was up there. Aren't you proud? That's just so she, she, she's just beaming over there behind you. Yeah. Yay! Husband got the answer right. Um, yeah, yeah. So his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, which is everything he created, and all their actions, which is everything that they do. That's God's providence. In other words, when you walk onto a high school campus, when you walk into a lunchroom. You will be a thousand. You will have a thousand times different countenance when you come in with the confidence of saying, "I know that God is the one doing this." This is not the Les Newsome show where I'm walking in, having to generate some excitement and keep people interested in my programs, coming to my thing. That's not why I'm here. I'm here because I believe that God has actually gone before me. He's actually already manifested Himself to all kinds of people through natural revelation. 
and through some degree of special revelation, depending on where you're located in your cultural context, God's at work. I had a friend of mine who planted a, a Red Mountain Church in, um, uh, uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, sort of in the, what would you call that neighborhood? Lakeview? That's right, that's right, the lake. That's what the whole neighborhood there is. Um, and Steve used to always say that when you, when you go into an area where there's like nobody, you've got no church, you've got nobody, he's like, I would sit in coffee shops and think to myself, what in the world am I going to say to commend myself to these people? And he said, about six months of feeling sorry for myself, I suddenly realized, I, I don't have to do that. God is at work. <laughs> he's, already put, he's already shown himself in some way. My job is not to create something that's there. My job is to find the places where God is already doing something. That's different. His countenance change, his attitude change, his courage change. He started having conversations he never had before. And the, the church is still there. Steve did not finish well, but the church is still going. It's a whole different story. Okay? So God is at work as a bit of a providential assumption that gives me the confidence to go on campus and a freedom to, uh, a freedom to fail. Right? Number three. We focus on the individual. Again, we're talking about behaviors, our modus operandi here, the way we are, the, the, the pattern of our ministry. And we talk about the fact that there is a desire to stay focused on individuals and make our ministry really about the uniqueness of individuals. Remember Pepe that I was drawing earlier? Mm-hmm. I'll do it a little bit bigger since I get the beret right. See there? He has a huge head, Pepe. Okay? How happy he is to be wearing a, wearing a beret. Um, and we talked about the fact that he's either moving towards or away from God's purposes in his life, remember? But focusing on the individual, you can tell that you've entered into this posture when you suddenly have an overwhelming sense of joy that, like, aren't people just wonderful? They're infinitely complex. There's no telling what's going on with that kid. I cannot wait to crawl up inside that kid's mind to whatever degree they'll let me do so. And to find out just what makes them tick. When you focus on an individual, you stop cookie-cuttering people. Uh, in this regard, one of the things that we sort of preach against here is the, um, the magical ministry tool. Uh, the magical ministry tool. Okay. That's the Beatles. Nobody hears the Beatles either. Um, what we're trying to say is oftentimes you'll get to a, a, a ministry tool that meant a lot to you, and you're like, holy cow, if I could just get this in front of as many people as possible, we will be rocking this place. I found this curriculum. Have you read so-and-so? I feel like for the last 25 years, you could mark off seasons of my life by the latest faddish book that like God is going to change the world with. It started in the mid-90s with um, the Purpose Driven Church. Now, ironically, I actually like that book. Uh, I think Rick Warren's kind of got it going on in a lot of, a lot of ways. Um, but I'm saying you never saw mania. By the way, the proceeds he got off that book, he, got, he, he asked for Saddleback to stop paying him. It's like, that's got all the integrity of the world. Now, he made a gazillion dollars with the book, so don't feel too sorry for him. But it was still an awesome thing to do. What do you do when all of a sudden your church isn't paying you? That's got to be awesome. If I could write a book and make a million dollars, y'all don't have to pay me. I can do whatever I want. You don't fire me. You want to promote your book now, yes? <laughs> That's right, because that one just flew off the shelves. <laughs> Shut up, Cece. Um, um, but anyway, so you had this whole you know, purpose of church. I tell you, if you were going to revitalize your church, you got to do purpose. We're doing purpose. Y'all do purpose of church. In the early two thousands, it was the uh, the prayer of Jabez. Does anybody remember the prayer of Jabez? This little obscure First Second Corinthians little prayer that gets prayed by a guy named Jabez. 
Lord, increase our territory. It was so gimmicky, I couldn't believe it. Mid-2000s, it was the uh, uh, Mel Gibson's Jesus film. Okay? Boy, I got lasered on campus for my view on this thing. Um, so it starts out, Mel Gibson made a movie of the life of Christ. I was like, cool, that'll be interesting. We'll go see Mel Gibson's uh, uh, opinion about what the Gospel of Luke is all about. So, but then, in the six months leading up to this thing, it was amazing how people came out of the woodwork. All these Christian leaders were like, this is the most dramatic evangelistic tool since the first century. And there will be, God is going to do a sweep through. It is not that exaggerated. I'm telling you, the stuff that was coming out of people's mouths, you were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, the church, you know, that's the thing that's not going to get, the gates of hell won't prevail against it. What are you talking about? The greatest ministry tool ever. And so I decided I would not go see it because I realized that my culture had raised up to an idolatry. You would think that I had denied the Trinity on campus to the Christian students. Oh, how dare you? Like we're called, we've rented out five theaters in the theater to bring all our friends. What are you thinking? It's going to be a huge movement. You're going to be the one standing on the sidelines. And here we are six months later from the movie. It didn't, it didn't make a dent. Not even, not even wiggle the needle. We know why? Because God has actually attached His truth to a certain methodology called the church. Time to do something outside of it. I could keep going on. But we love the magical ministry tool um, that will sort of change people automatically. But that's contradicted by our things. Like, no, no, no. We're going to get down and dirty with the lives of individuals. Because that's how the Bible works. Isn't that amazing how these great moves for God are never giant movements? It's always one person who is faithful. Why do we know who Rahab was? She's a whore from, from Jericho. <laughs> Why do we know who she is? She was one faithful person that God scooped up out, dealt with her. And suddenly, years, years later, one of her great-great-great-great-grandchildren is the Messiah. How about that? See what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's in that Michael. That's sort of the spirit. And when you come in that attitude, it's different. You don't start thinking in realms, like we just want to do something huge for God this semester. Yes, and what would that be? Probably that little person right there that annoys you to death. That's what it's going to be. Loving that one person. Because you don't know. You don't know what actually got spared. What God spared the world when you loved that person. That's what I always think about getting to heaven. It's not what we did that made the big impact, but what we did that protected things happening. Somebody cursed me with this a couple years ago, and I, I want to punch him in the face. But like when you're on your way somewhere, because I have road rage. I have road rage. Um, my name's Les Newsom. I have road rage. Um, and um, he was like, how do you know that God didn't put that person to cut you off to keep you from a wreck that was going to happen two miles down? I was like, shut up. I want to be bad at that moment. How do I know that that little person that I love didn't like have this chain reaction you know, the butterfly effect, right? All the way down the line that God was bringing about His purposes. There's a little bit of God work, God's at work on that. But I love the idea that there's a local, there's a local beauty to the Bible's revelation of how He gets Himself, uh, how He advances His mission. There's a little guy, this is, this is an old John Piper illustration. Some guy named Henry Schuylkill, who was where? Was it Switzerland, France? Well, he says in the continent somewhere. Writes this book called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. Has a ministry that never climbs over fifty, hundred people in his church. But he writes this little book. Somehow the book sort of gets published, hangs around. Somehow uh, George Whitfield stumbles across it in, in an old bookstore, reads it, gets converted, and suddenly becomes one of the greatest evangelists. Hundred fifty years after the guy died. How do you know? So one day the enduring community will be huge. CC, I'm sure that's what you meant to say earlier, right? I'm getting tired, and that means I'm getting silly, so I need to quit talking. Number four. Number four is something we call the learning process. 
Okay? This one is not quite as esoteric as it might sound. We recognize that there are different ways for people to own, O-W-N, information rather than just by being taught and told. Okay? The learning process recognizes that people come to grasp information in different ways. And we identify them through the old InterVarsity acronym, which is the most awkward acronym ever. It, it spells nothing. T-D-O-E-E. Somebody one year tried to pronounce it. I was like, don't do that. You know Tadoe? I was like, mm-mm. That's not what we say. You say T-D-O-E-E. That's all you need to say. Here's what we say. We say the learning process has multiple aspects to it. First of all, there is teaching. Sure. Right? We talked about that. The proclamation is not dead yet. The TED Talk proved us that. We teach people. But D means we also have to demonstrate. You know? Give me a fish, you'll feed me for a day. Teach me to fish, you'll feed me for a lifetime. Demonstrate. Let people... Do people have enough access into your life to where they can see you uh, behave like a normal Christian behaves? You know, I mean, how frantic are we when the youth come over to the house, to your house, to get the place cleaned up and tidy? My wife and I have been having this fight for years. You know, she goes into this like, they're coming over! You know? And I'm like, it's okay, like... People live in filth. You know, that's part of what it means to be a human being, right? Um, but somebody needs to come. Um, is it okay for somebody to see you kind of lose it a little bit with your kids? Probably. Because that's humanity, right? To let them get a, a glimpse of this is what a normal Christian life is about. And, and, maybe see you making a commitment to being there at worship on a regular basis. To having a regular time with the Lord in prayer and in the Scripture. All those things ask a question, is do students have enough access to your life? Introverts, I'm not saying every moment of your life, but enough aspects to your life, you're letting them see you just be a normal person. Okay? Number three is the word observe. This one's reversed. Do students have enough access to your life to see you demonstrate? Do you take enough opportunities to be in their world to watch them? Okay? Because in order for them to really own learning, to grow to grasp and own material, you got to know what it's like. That's why we go to basketball games. That's why we sit in the stands at football games. I know how self-conscious you feel. I know how awkward it is. I know that youth group kid who looked at you like, you were the best thing in the world. And then you saw them at the, at the basketball game, and they treated you like you were a leper. Okay? What <laughs> <laughs> happens every time? Like, oh, it's easy, it's terrible. And they go walking away. Like, I know that happens, but here's the deal. Until I see them in their natural habitat, like, like a safari animal or something, um, I'm not going to know how to connect, right? Uh, the ma- most of that you ever look, the most we ever learn about our children is standing a little bit of ways and being like, they're there with their friends right now. What are they doing? Right? It's our biggest insight into Luke, because Luke, Luke knows how to, Luke knows how to, this is, my, this is my 15-year-old. He knows how to pull his mama's strings. His mama's strings. Because he can be so syrupy, sweet. He's a four, by the way. Lives on the basis of emotions all the time. Okay? Everything is emotional for him. And he goes to his mom. He's like, Mama, I just, Mama, I love you so much. And yeah, see, you do, the CC does the same thing about you. Yeah, then you go watch my youth group, you're kind of like, You are a punk. You're a punk. Stop doing that. Luke, he's awesome. Number four is evaluate. Here's the deal. People don't grow without getting feedback about their growth. Mm-hmm. They've got to be evaluated. got to come back and be like, can I talk to you about something? When's the last time we had that conversation with the youth? Being like, I, I, want, I want to talk with you about something. I want you to think about this. Um, 
and couch it in terms of being like, I think that God's law and God's word is the pattern of reality. It's kind of like a block of wood. If you go along with the grain of the wood, you can feel and experience the wood. But if you go against the grain of reality, you're going to splinter up your life. I don't want you to be hurt. I feel like there's things that you're thinking about and going through that might be kind of rough. I'm afraid it's going to hurt you. Right now I think it feels great, but I just don't want to see you get hurt one day. That's evaluating. That's bringing godly uh, uh, confrontation uh, into a system. Habig's got a whole seminar on godly confrontation that I used to do that we don't have time to do now, but that'll be for future years. So we evaluate. Fifth, finally, is we encourage. Um, Okay, so I'm doing the seminar. Um, I'm doing a seminar, um, gosh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago? Here, at this other pavilion that's kind of around here. And I'm going through the presuppositions. And in walks the founder of Reformed University Fellowship, Mark Lowry. Sort of big dude. Um, Has this real country accent, so he talks through his nose like this. And he pops in the back. That's a really good imitation of Mark. He pops in the back and kind of sits all the way back in the area. And I'm up here kind of talking, and I'm feeling extremely self-conscious because he's never sat in on the seminar that I've taught, which is his material that he sort of compiled. And I'm up there really kind of weird. And I accidentally reversed encourage and evaluate. I reversed them. Just, which, who cares? Both of them are ease, right? I get to the end of it, and I was like, okay, Mark, sorry, you've been looking at me this whole time. Tell me if I missed anything. What did I, what did I get wrong? He goes, uh, no, everything sounded good except for the fact that you reversed, evaluate, and encourage. And I remember thinking, really, that's what you got? And then he said this, and this is just the, the way that man's mind works. He goes, because you cannot bring evaluation to people's life without finishing with encouragement, because you'll crush them. And I thought, that's the reason why that man's got a pastoral heart. Don't... Yeah. Uh, we had a, we had a marriage conference uh, in in October uh, at our church, and the, the guy was coming along and made this little offhand comment about child rearing to the to the marriages in the room. He said, "You know, children come out of the womb needing to be de-shamed. Don't, don't look, a lot of times you look at your children being like, what they need is a swift kick in the pants, maybe, but I can tell you that at the fundamental root of what's really p- motivating even their behavior outwards is a shame issue." And we, they are bottomless pits of encouragement. I dated a girl uh, when I was in college who struggled with an eating disorder. And uh, I remember sort of reaching my limit you know, after a couple of years. We did it all through college. Um, and I was part of the problem. For the record, I was part of the problem. Um, and I remember going to my youth director one time. And I was like, I get to a point where I just don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And he goes, look, it's real simple. You do three things. You encourage. You encourage. And then you encourage. And it always stuck with me. Because you can always do it. Be somebody's cheerleader. Um, uh, what, what, what's, the, what's the movie with the, uh, the boy with the distorted face? Wonder. Did y'all see Wonder? Get to the very end, and the moral of the whole story is, it'll rip you up one side down the other. Like, if you've not seen it, get yourself a box of tissues and watch it. Because in the last scene of the movie, the moral of the story is, you know, I think at least one time in someone's life, they need to have a standing ovation. That, that is one of the most powerful things that you'll do in the life and hearts of people. One of my favorite things to do is to go to Oxford High School graduation um, because the, the guy who gets up there uh, is the principal. And he... Um, do I have time to tell the story? Oh, yeah. So the principal gets up there every time and says the exact same thing. He's kind of like, now we do would like to ask the, um, 
participants here and the families. We're so glad you're here. But if you could hold your applause until the end of the ceremony, we'll thank them all together. So please, let's be respectful to the graduates as they cross the stage. And so the shocking thing is every single white person in the room is just kind of like very obedient, very sort of in keeping. Every single black person is kind of like, whoa, Demetrius! What? Everybody kind of cheers. And somebody's got air horns, you know, letting them all off. They look at them like, whatever. And what's funny is, is I had this sense that like the white people are condescending like nobody's business. Kind of like, oh, there they go. You know what I'm saying? They can feel that racism kind of in there. How dare they do that? And I started thinking, and we talked about this in, in a sermon, uh, what happened this time last year. I was like, which one is more biblical? Mm. What about a parent that's out there being like, nope, <laughs> you will not keep me from cheering my child on. That will not happen. I, don't, I disagree with your rule. Because if there's any time which I'm going to salute that child, it's going to be the day they graduate from high school. So screw your rule. <laughs> Woo-hoo! You know, hit the thing. <laughs> I started thinking, you know, I'm okay with it now. But it's amazing how much you get there because you didn't follow the rules. It's close to the heart of God. Hmm. What will heaven be like for us? Anyway, encourage, encourage, encourage. I love that story. Number, that's number four, five. Yeah, 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 five. Demographics. This one's interesting. Because demographics actually does share a little bit with our ministry dynamics. Who was talking about demographics earlier? We had this conversation. I can't remember we talking about demographics. Um, one of the things that we've got to be aware of that is a ministry dynamic is what is my place like? I need, I need to have some tools where I'm saying, this sounds like a little bit of a factor that we represent 30 different schools in our youth group or that 82% of my youth group are all homeschooled. Okay, That's a demographic. We used to say that phrase kind of as joking in our youth. That's what you call a demographic whenever there's something weird. Um, Let's go to uh, Furman. Not Furman, not Furman. Uh, what's, what's in Rock Hill? Winthrop. Let's go to Winthrop. So Winthrop, we got a first campus minister who starts the RUF there many years ago. Uh, labors for three years. He said, I'm dying because 80% of my large group had about 100 people coming. 80 of them are women. What am I doing with men? Okay, freaking out. And I mean melting down freaking out. So, what am I doing? I'm doing this wrong. He's beating people up. You know, why would these guys bring their friends? You know, of the, the 20 guys that are there, come on a regular basis, they're getting beat up every week. You know, why don't you bring your friends? He won't focus on the women because he feels like he's really got to work on the men until he's having this conversation just overheard by someone from the admissions office of the school. Guess what the breakdown of the school is? 75-25. So he was just 5% off. 75% women, you were mirroring the campus to a large measure. He'd have known that, right? Had he been doing his demographics. There's a lot of stuff you're beating yourself up for presently that probably doesn't be beat up for because it's just not the way it's ever going to happen. Now, is it possible to make excuses for not getting the work done? I'm sure it is. But somebody's got to do the work. What is the racial breakdown of this school? What is the socioeconomic breakdown of that high school that's involved? What are the different kinds of high schools in that 30 that we have represented here? Private to public. Um, who are we as a church, and are we pining for something that's actually attainable? You know, a lot of times we get a lot of very excited people to be like, if no one's going to sort of deal with the racism problem in the church, uh, we need to be the leaders in it. So let's, 
let's hire an African-American pastor and he'll just bring in all the black people. It works all the time, right? That's why we always do it. It never works because nobody knows what they're asking for. We should bring a black person and bring in all the black people. Okay, are you going to change everything about the way you worship and do time and everything else? Well, I mean, nobody has any intention of changing. They just want to feel better about their racism, right? Um, if you make that decision, we want to see African Americans come and join here, are you really ready for that? Some churches are. We started talking about it about seven years ago as a church. So we go down to Jackson, Mississippi to talk to Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Jackson and some of the leadership there. They're like, how did you do it? <laughs> so great. Steve Chastain looked across this committee and goes, well, we did it by splitting the church. It split the church. And I go, oh, okay, well, how would you do it differently in the future? He goes, no way differently. It's just going to split the church. You can start to increase your African-American thing. It's going to split the church. <laughs> now, he was being a little dark, maybe a little dark, um, but what he was saying is, it has nothing to do with your goodwill. And it has nothing to do with their willingness or not willingness to come into your white room. Do you know what it's going to take for them to be a minority in your place? Because until you figure that out, please don't try to do that and hurt somebody. The tragedy is you get a lot of these African-American guys that go off to seminary and some church throws $80,000 a year at them to come work for them as an assistant pastor because they're super committed to making this happen. And they can't do anything. Because they go out to their friends and be like, you want to come to, you know, First Pres, Whereverville, it's awesome, and you know, the organ is kind of weird, but you'll get used to it. And they're like, no, we'll never go to your church. Why would I do that? And, and, and suddenly that person gets hurt because a lot of pressure on them to produce, bring the minorities in. So it's true for Hispanics or Asians or whatever else that goes on like that. Like, please don't hear me say, please don't hear me say, so therefore we all need to stay in our same lane and be our same races. No. I'm saying if you'll do the demographic work over what you look like, you'll be a whole lot better poised to take steps in that direction. In wisdom and not in reactionism. Okay? So demographics are a big thing. Do you have demographic tools? Do you have access to that? Are you hunting it down? What is your town like? What is your church like? What's the history of your church? What are the traumatic things that happened in the back of the history of church? All those things go into demographics. Okay? Last point, we've got time for questions before we head off to worship. And this is one that I've never done in the past because Joey always did this, but I don't know if we're having a whole seminar on this on this presupposition. Presupposition of the church. Now you're confused again because you're like, wait a minute. You said the church was one of our core values that helped create our little pentagon and the, you know, whether they're churched or unchurched. Where is this now? Remember, these are about our behaviors. What we say is, is that we have the church behind us. You are here to participate in the life of the church. So who was asking me about where in that thing are we enfolding people into the local church? He's not here. He left, okay. He got bored and left, that's okay. Um, this is where this takes place. We're the church people. We're here to look and say, uh, yeah, we believe that this whole body is what you need. Your youth group needs to hang out with that lady who's a single mom. They just do. Uh, they need to have that, uh, that older gentleman who's lived a whole lot longer with a whole lot more experiences. He needs to kind of be around. It takes that whole body approach for people to do that. And there's a difference when you... A lot of times youth group people feel so alienated anyway, they just kind of want for everybody else to leave them alone. Um, but there's ways for us to strategize. But you know, What does it look like for us to really be a part of the whole church? And sometimes you've got to rattle the cages of the leadership to be like, hey, we're, we're here. I know you've been planning all these things, but like we might could help with that. How can we get, be involved in that? I know you're all thinking this is a mission trip for y'all and adults, but why can't the youth come to that? Okay. All right, y'all. There's the there's the stuff. This is all the all the all the data points of the philosophy of ministry.
There's other. There's so many interesting conversations to have in the light of this. That's what the rest of this week is for. This is your reminder to get you back into the lingo. Because by the time you do this for three or four years, we want you to have this lingo at your fingertips so you can talk about it. Because when you share lingo, you can move along in your thinking. All right, questions about anything? We've got the whole time to... Um, yes, Josh. So I told you all that our youth group is predominantly um, girls. Uh, and, and I'm having an issue right now. One of the boys, I think there's two or three boys, and one of them is a ninth grader. And all of his buddies go to First Baptist, or North, North Greenwood Baptist. Mm-hmm. And his parents, they really want him coming... I don't think coming to like worship on a Sunday morning is an issue. Like he's always going to be there. But on a Wednesday night, they want him coming to our youth group. But the parents are really struggling on like what what they should do. Um, how do you? I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out how to help the parents. Like I don't want to say, well, you just make him come to our youth group. I mean, I definitely wouldn't wouldn't say that. Oh, so there's a, there's a covenant kid from your church who his parents are. Letting him go to the agreement or want him to go? Well, to no, no, he wants to go because oh. all of his buddies are there. Right. Our youth group is mainly all girls, and he just feels a little odd in there. Yeah. And so all of his friends go to yeah. the other place. Okay. So I'm just trying to figure out how to help her or help them. I, I would be really hesitant to make a judgment call on this without knowing him or the situation. Um, it is possible that there's an immaturity out there. But I hate the thought that that ought to be an either-or. Yeah. I kind of get that. I kind of want to take the kid's side a little bit and be yeah. like, yeah, it might be nice to be with my buddies. Yeah. Um, my question is, could I bargain with the parents to say, look, I want to start a small group with him and his buddies on Tuesday mornings at the McDonald's. I'm going to buy them all hash browns and yeah. whatever else. <laughs> uh, and just be, be like, hey, you go with them on their Wednesday night program. Yeah. I want you to start this small group with you and your buddies. <coughs> Yeah. Um, see how that goes. There may, there may be a moderating sort of um, uh, uh, way in between those two, but I, don't, I hesitate without knowing the personalities involved. There might be something legit, straight up disobedience needs to be confronted and all that. Yeah. But I, I want to be careful about those battles because a lot of those things, especially in small towns, can mark you. You know, you're the weirdo church. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I just want to be real careful about how that. Uh, what, what what hills I'm going to die on yeah. when it comes to that kind of stuff? It's a good question. Yeah, uh, I've been working on trying to get our youth our youth more involved with the adults and the rest of the congregation at our church. And the main way that I've been strategically doing that is through having our large groups as like sort of a, a time for other or for like other adults to come in and like be introduced and like give their testimony. Oh yeah, that's great. Towards, yeah towards the youth ministry. That hasn't really created sort of the depth of relationship or, or hasn't naturally turned into anything more like I wanted it to. Yeah. What 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 next steps would you like suggest I would be trying to take to get the Didn't we do involved? something like that a while back? Because I came yeah, and did something did last session. Yeah, did all you, the session did, came. Did you do it too? I did one too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I would have been last year. Came and told your story. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It was kind of good in connecting them, but also some of them would leave right after, come right forward, leave right after. Yeah, so yeah. Really yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I can only speak for myself. I mean, Scott would say something unique, but I, the best success I ever had as an individual pastor, oh, I kind of want to talk about Sunday Night Fellowship, the kind of way we sort of wired that. Because I loved it. I don't know whether they... I think they liked it okay. They loved it. Um, but we, we, we started... When when my daughters went to junior high, 
we went to Scott and we're like, hey, could we have a junior high youth fellowship over at our house? Part of it was on the, some advice from um, Paul Tripp. Who's Ted Tripp? I don't know which one. Paul Tripp tells a story about building a half pipe in his backyard. Have y'all heard the story that he tells? So his kid gets into skateboards, and he was like, oh, terrific. I got a skateboarding kid. And so what they decide is they're like, well, if you can't beat them, join them. So they spend, drop like two grand to build a half pipe in his backyard. Okay? And he said, suddenly, everybody in the neighborhood wanted to be at our house. And they were always under our, our you know, oversight. And my wife would make cookies and come out with lemonade and be like, would you all like some cookies? And even though they laughed at it at first, they were like, yeah, sure. And so he said the value was is that we got to be in their world on his turf. And so Ginger and I were kind of like, let's do that with Sunday Night Fellowship. So we'd like, we wanted people to come over for no other reason than the fact to watch our children interact with their friends. Very selfish choice on our behalf. Um, but as it morphed and kind of grew, um, what I began to realize was, and we, we did that for eight years, because uh, uh, as they went to high school, then Scott let me do the high school. It's a very shameless request on behalf of our youth director. Be glad you don't work for me. Um, but I, what I changed in was I, I sort of switched this over. This is when I was 45, 47 years old. I was drifting further and further away of really feeling like I had a high schooler's life at my fingertips. And I knew it. And I remembered all the time um, my, one of my old mentors, Bebo Elkin, saying, you, you'll grow irrelevant when you stop asking the questions and be honest about it. So I was like, you know what? I don't know what it's like to be a high schooler at Oxford High School. So we started building this thing where we did like a, a Q&A uh, on, on Sunday nights. And so at the beginning of the semester, Scott and I would form together all these like 25 questions or something. And we throw them into this hat, and we pull it out, and that was the question of the night. And it would be things like, what is the biggest pressure that is facing your average student at Oxford High School? Okay? It doesn't have a gotcha to it. Um, what does God want you to be on campus? That's a gotcha question. You know what I'm right. saying? It was more like, tell me what it's like to be a student at Oxford High School. And don't assume that you know it. And the better off we did, the more engaged they got, um, and we saw a lot of good success of them letting me know stuff that regularly shocked me. The biggest one, Cece was here for this. We were sitting there talking one night, and I said, okay, what's the biggest political hot button on campus right now? What do y'all argue about most? Three of them piped up. They were like, abortion. And I was like, what? Abortion. I was like, abortion is your biggest hot topic? I was like, I had those conversations when I was in college in the late 80s, for Pete's sakes. What do you mean it's a... Suddenly they start talking about the political climate on campus and realizing that people have been cussing each other out on Snapchat for like months over the latest sort of political Trump, Obama, whatever thing that was going on. And I was like, holy cow, we might ought to have a conversation about some of these political things together. You know what I'm saying? Um, now where is this going to? If a parent could honestly do that, I think there's some value. But you got to work, and I'm saying it was work for me. You got to work to not react in the way in which you kind of the didactic impulse. It takes work to let those things hang out and be like, oh, "Wow, I'm not really sure. I believe Reagan just said that, but she did, and I'm going to keep my eyes focused up here so I don't react to her." Um, but she would regularly surprise me, as she often does. She's delightful. I adore Reagan. Um, but, but that, that I, th I feel like some ways to throw parents into that kind of setting, it may be a unique parent that could do that. But if someone was honest and came to you and it's kind of like, yeah, I want, I want to treat students like subjects and not objects, like you were preaching about last week, um, how do I do that? 
Like, I got an idea. Let's have some youth fellowship time that we do such. I don't know, dude. I'd love to hear y'all's suggestions the way y'all can involve parents. Have you heard of the Pray For Me campaign before? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like a campaign where you get, you pair three adults from three different generations with one student to pray for them for a whole calendar year. Mm. Um, and that has caused some, like, like some parents feel a little weird about it because the way Pray For Me suggests you do it is the student selects the, their prayer partners, which could be a little <laughs> uncomfortable. We had a committee member tell us that she felt like she was getting picked last for the ball. <laughs> That's exactly, exactly. For kickball. Yeah. Right. No one wants me on um, my team. But I will say, like, seeing students, like, we had an older senior high girl say, like, I'm going to pick an older lady because I know she'll pray for me. Um, that's pretty exciting, like, to yeah. see, like, them, like, trusting in oh, I love that. other church members. So yeah. I'll, I'll finish with this. In, in, in the state of Mississippi, we have a problem with racism. Um, not sure if you've ever heard that. Um, and one of the things that, that uh, I'm very proud of is one of the guys who actually started an organization called Mission Mississippi is now about to join our church. Um, but as we talk together, he, he talks about the value that Mission Mississippi took no political stances whatsoever. They did one thing and one thing only. They wanted to get blacks and whites together for breakfast once a month to just pray for each other. That was it. Because when you have to pray for each other, you've got to tell your story. And what happened was, is as they listened to other people's stories, it humanized people. And suddenly they couldn't demonize them. They realized that it's not because he, the black guy doesn't work. He's not lazy. It's that he keeps getting kicked in the head every month, and they suddenly had an appreciation for it. There's a lot of value in that, so kudos for that. Hey, y'all, thank y'all very much. It's always a delight to see you. You've got my email address up there. If I can help with any resources, uh, you want some clarification on stuff, drop me an email. I would love to interact with you. Thank you. Y'all have been great. I'll see you in worship here in just a second.